Hey there folks, Alex Oaks here, Classic Camera Revival, and welcome back. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. Bill Smith and I sit down with the one, the only, Mr. Mike Ekman. If you're a member of Facebook groups that are dedicated to film camera collecting, vintage cameras, or just the acquisition of gear, then you will know his posts. He is the master of the long-form camera review, the revealer of mysteries, and according to internet rumors, the smasher of cameras. But before we get to the uh, introduction and into the interview, I want to bring up our 100th episode. That's right. Next season in March, we are going to have our 100th numbered episode. That's right. We've probably already come close to our 100th episode, but this will be number 100 according to the actual numbered episodes. And we want your help. Yes, I want you to send us an email with an audio clip of one to two minutes with your favorite camera. We want to know why you like it, where you got it, and any sort of special story that's attached to that. If you can fit it into one, two, three, even a four minute clip. We want to hear it. You can check out our episode notes to uh, get the details on how to send that in to us. And without further ado, let's roll the intro. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. Hi everyone, it's Bill Smith in the Classic Camera Revival, and we got a really special guest tonight on the show. An elder statesman in camera uh, collecting and blogging, one Mike Ekman of MikeEkman.com. And we're here uh, with a bit of an open-ended program with all sorts of questions, and right now I'd like to introduce Mr. Ekman. Come on down. Hey guys, uh, I'm glad to be on the show. Uh, it's finally... Um... Uh, nice to be able to hear you guys' voices, you know, in person. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you how did you wind down this rabbit hole with the rest of us? <laughs> yeah, rabbit hole is probably the best way to describe it. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've always had an interest in photography. You know, as a kid, my dad had some Canon SLR. I honestly don't even know what it was. You know, he was always a guy taking pictures. Uh, you know, he had a VHS camcorder when my sister and I were kids. So he always, you know, uh, was taking pictures of the family. And I think I kind of got, you know, a, a little bit of the bug from that. Uh, I remember having like um, some kind of Fisher Price 110 camera when I was a kid, maybe a few point and shoots in the 90s. Uh, 2000s came, I, you know, I got into digital like a lot of people did. Uh, bought my first DSLR. Uh, I had a part-time job working for Best Buy and they had a good discount for employees. So I kind of got the bug on digital photography and I knew some people with Nikon SLRs. So that's just kind of what I leaned into. And then um, eventually got, you know, some upgrades. I shot pretty much all digital. I really knew nothing about film other than, you know, the memories of it as a kid. Um, one day, which I, I assume is similar to what a lot of people experience, I was bored and on eBay. And, uh, that's I, a dangerous combination. <laughs> I saw, so I don't even know how, like, I don't recall ever like a specific reason why I looked for it or like how it popped up on my screen, but, uh, a, a Nikon film SLR, um, which was the EL2, uh, showed up. I thought it looked cool. I, I was vaguely aware that Nikon film lenses were compatible with their DSLRs. I mean, I didn't understand things like crop sensor, you know, how it affected stuff like that, but I thought, what the hell, you know, I mean, I, I know I wouldn't have paid a lot of money, a lot of money for it. Uh, so I bought that camera. Um, it actually worked perfectly. The metering was spot on because uh, I really wouldn't have known how to like, you know, meter manually would have, wouldn't have had like a handheld meter or anything like that. Uh, but, but it was just in really rough shape. You know, I think the pen and prism was damaged. The, 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 or the, the, the top plate was damaged. The pen and prism was desilvering. Um, it probably had light leaks, you know, and, you know, I was like, all right, this is cool, but I want something better, you know? So I got like another camera and then another camera. And then, um, suddenly I had 300, you know, so I'm not really sure how I got, uh, from one to the other, but, um, in terms of the blog, um, I had started MikeEckman.com, I think in 2011, uh, once again, bored and online. Uh, I, uh, one day I, I thought it would be fun to register my own name as a domain name. Um, I didn't really have a, um, 
uh, an intent an intent for it. Uh, I, I installed WordPress, you know, a very early version of it, and uh, just started writing random stuff. You know, I remember posting some some movie reviews. Uh, I talked a little bit about technology, just stupid things that popped in my head. Um, and so, you know, around that time when I got uh, that Nikon SLR, I thought it might be kind of fun to maybe write something about old cameras. Um, I, I got the first actual camera I really wrote about, though, was a Kodak number 1A folding, a 116 camera. Uh, I think it was called the Kodak Autographic Junior. You know, I, I thought it was cool. You know, I bought a 90-year-old camera, and I tried to figure out how to use it. And, um, you know, then I got the next one, I think, was an Argus C3. Um, I got a Fed 2 was an early camera I got. Um, I know last week you guys spoke to Stephen, Stephen Dowling, and he's a huge fan of the Fed 2, you know, and that was probably my, it was my first Soviet camera, but it was probably my, uh, my, my gateway drug to so many mm -hmm. others. <laughs> I think it's a gateway drug for a lot of uh, Soviet camera shooters. Yeah, the, the Fed 2 is great because, like, it looks different enough from the original Leica that less people are critical of it as being a true Leica copy because, you know, it's got the wider rangefinder base. Um, it does have the the diopter built into it, which I think works really well. Um, That's the one feature I really do love because my yeah. I, my Gen X eyesight ain't what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and obviously it still takes the like a screw mount lenses, and you know, most of the Soviet glass from that period is is, is pretty good. So, and plus, it doesn't. One of the best features of the Fed too that a lot of people don't talk about it is the lack of slow speeds is actually a great feature because the slow speeds on on Soviet cameras are, are one of the biggest Achilles heels of many of them. Um, you know, there's that, there's that um, uh, belief that you're supposed to cock the shutter first before changing speeds, which, which is true on many cameras, but on, on some Soviet cameras, you can actually break the camera if you do it out of order, whereas that's not an issue for the uh, Fed 2 because it doesn't even have the slow speed governor to get messed up. Well, I do have one question. Again, we sort of... Uh trolled for questions in a few groups mm -hmm. and the big one one of the first one again it ties in into, how do you get all your cameras and do you actually own them or are they loaners when you do reviews um i'd say well when i first started everything was mine um i mean it, it took a while before like people even knew who i was i mean you know i've had people talk about like how do i get started with a blog and you know they see my site and like well i want to do something similar to what you have but you know for the first year i'd say that i was reviewing cameras i'd be lucky to get 50 hits a day um i didn't even cross 500 hits a day until almost three years into doing it i mean i did basically no promotion at all um i don't ever i remember jim gray from down the road uh was one of the first people ever to share one of my posts and i was like i thought that was so cool like wow somebody liked my post enough to talk about it so i did almost no self-promotion and I, I didn't even really know that i had that much engagement back then so when you're that small not too many people are gonna be willing to just send you their cameras uh but you know as time went on you know i started getting more people willing to send me things um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how trusting some people are, you know, uh, even though I have a website, I'm still just some guy on the internet and I've had, you know, I, I got the Bell and Howell Photon, which is incredibly valuable and rare camera, uh, a Leica Model A sent to me, Hasselblad X-Pan with every lens available. Whoa. Um, the guy sent to me, he, the shipping cost on that was like 60 bucks just wow. to ship that thing. Um, so, I mean, I, I've been incredibly fortunate that people have, um, been able to loan me stuff. Um, and, you know, real quick, sorry, you know, anybody who's read my site, you know, I, they, my reviews can be pretty long and it's because I don't ever shut up. So if I, if I tend to go off topic, some, I apologize. <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry. We'll gently prod you back. Yeah. But to, to answer your question, I'd say <laughs> now, I'd say now there's definitely a lot more that are loaners. Um, mm. part, part of the reason is when people loan me a camera, they kind of get excited uh, to do a review. And I do want to at least make an effort to try and get it back to them as soon as I can. So mm -hmm. a lot of times a loaned camera will like, um, you know, jump the queue, so to speak, and, mm. and, and bump a lot of my own cameras down the list quite a bit. Um, but from what you see on the site, the vast majority of them I still do have. Mm -hmm. um, on occasion, I'll review a camera, and if I'm just really indifferent to it or I don't like it, I'll trade it with other collectors, you know. So while mm -hmm. some people are, are um, fans of, of my site, you know, they're willing to loan me cameras. A few people have just given me stuff. Um, a guy in uh, the UK named Paul 
early on said, Hey, I've, I've noticed you've never reviewed a practica. Send me your address. I'm going to send you one, you know, and he sent me a practica four, which is probably the best practica. I, I, I love those. The four and the five are basically the same camera. Uh, so a few people have donated me stuff. Uh, most of the time it's just loaners. Um, you know, and, uh, I, I, like I said, I do try to, um, you know, get those done sooner than others, but yeah, I mean, a, a vast majority of, them. before the show started, we had the camera, the video on, you guys could see my wallet stuff. So yeah, it's most of it's my personal collection. So actually when you're, when you're going about writing a review, how do you, where do you get your information to sort of fill in the back, uh, the background history? Cause some camera, I find some brands like Nikon. Good case in point. We've got photography in Malaysia, which is responsible for basically eviscerating my bank account and any future <laughs> retirement plans. Yeah. Uh, you got sites like that, which make life easy for the technical, but sort of the historical, you know, some brands, there's maybe a smaller community and it is just not enough as much material. How do you find that? Cause that's what I love about your reviews they're in depth and you know, they cover everything from, you know, the history behind the company, but also the history of the yeah. design process up until how's this camera like to use? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a good question. Um, a little bit of luck, you know, I mean, it's specific to Nikon, you know, there are some, some great sites, but um, for anybody who's been on my site quite a bit, you've, you've seen that I collaborate with Bob Rodoloni often. Mm -hmm. He's the president of the Nikon Historical Society, you know, world-renowned expert. His Nikon rangefinder books are just fantastic. Um, he lives five minutes from my house. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's a huge plus. Uh, I can literally just mm -hmm. go to his house and pick his brain. And, and even though he's, he's known uh, as the Nikon guy, he has a tremendous level of knowledge on other things, Canon, Pentax. Uh, he's actually a huge fan of the, the KW Practina. He loves those. He's got a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm in Northwest Indiana, but you know, I'm about an hour, hour and a half from Chicago, uh, Northwest suburbs, uh, Vlad Kern. He's the owner of ussrphoto.com. Um, okay. I've been to his house a number of times. Another great guy who is just tremendously helpful in, 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 in giving me information, answering questions pretty much anytime I'm doing a Soviet camera review. Um, if I'm not picking his brain, I'll usually just send him a draft and say, Hey, take a look, tell me what you think. What did I get wrong you know and he'll, he'll point me in the right direction um for the less obscure stuff um doing this as long as i have you know uh actually next month will be six years since my first camera post um i, I do a lot of digging on models and sometimes i'll find something on a camera that looks interesting that i don't own but i'll save it so like, let's say I'm doing a review on a KW, you know, a Prectina or uh, the Reflex box. Um, and, you know, I'm looking for early SLR box cameras and maybe I find something on a Fotlander or some other German camera that I don't have. I'll actually make a folder on my computer and just save stuff there so that if I ever do come across that camera, I've, I've already done some of the research. Um, sometimes I'll even find like old archived websites um, I, one person or a couple of people have referred to me as a camera historian and, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a kind, uh, label, but I, I would say that I'm more of a camera archeologist in the sense that I'm just kind of digging up information that's already out there. Um, well, you know, I think it's important. I, I think you're doing important work because again, it's like, if I'm researching a purchase, and it's like, okay, you're one of the sites I'll go look at because mm -hmm. it's like, uh, I remember I was uh, hankering for a Canon EF a few years back and I came across your piece on it yeah, and I kind of sealed the deal. And it's kind of one of more, the more of the more, what I call the more, because I'm also a music nerd, it's one of the more deep cuts in, in, in yeah. sort of the camera because everyone in Canon, oh, I want an AE1. And yeah. that's nice, but AE1s aren't that durable. They don't work well in the winter. No. And Indiana gets the same lovely weather that Southern yeah. Ontario gets. Yep. Gray and slushy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'll save what I could find. Um, I, I've gotten good, you know, and then it's like once, once you get used to digging around on stuff, you get used to using the Wayback Machine, you know, mm -hmm. web.archive.org. Um, I will scour Google Books uh, for like old pop foot 
popular photography magazines, you know, uh, sometimes it can be difficult to know what to, who to trust. You know, um, sometimes the, one of the biggest complaints you'll hear from collectors, you know, the, 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 the old school collectors, you know, the guys that have been doing this for, you know, 50, you know, 40, 50 years is that there's a lot of wrong information on the internet. And, you know, that's true. And, and I'm not going to be naive to think that I have 100% of my facts right because sometimes it's just really hard to know what's right and what isn't. But I'll make an effort in my head sort of like to determine how likely is this to be true. So like I'll value information that I find in old pop and modern photography over some blog, you know, okay. um, if, if I find a website, you know, even if it's an old, like a GeoCities website or some kind of web 1.0 site that I could see the guy put a lot of effort into, um, you know, Captain Jack's exact site, for example, you know, that, that has, has since been shuttered. Um, I'll still put value in, into the things that they say. And in some cases, they've done such a terrific job of, um, well, first of all, I try not to plagiarize. I don't ever want to take credit for anything someone else has done. So a lot of times if I'm borrowing information, I will make an effort to reword it in my own words. But sometimes something's just so perfectly worded and covered, I, I will fully credit and say, you know, uh, the vast majority of what I'm about to type was taken from this website, you know, because I don't want anybody to think that I'm stealing from them. Oh, yeah, uh, that makes sense. You got to properly attribute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's what I, I do try to, and I've actually gotten better at that, you know, so I will say like, if you look at some of my earlier sites I was I was far less good about crediting other people um, I'm guilty of taking images of cameras I don't own that I find in Google image search um, you know I know that's a, a big no-no in, in the, the blogging community but you know it's something I've tried to remedy um, I do on occasion go back and find some of my older posts like maybe there's a camera that at the time I didn't have but now I do so I will some without announcing it I will update older reviews and refresh the pictures and and try and make the content match my current writing style so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really do just dig and dig and you, you do start to find patterns. I do start to use the same resources over mm -hmm. and over and over again for like old advertisements. Cause I was like, I think that's, that's relevant. When I go through the history of cameras, I always try to include something like how was it advertised? What, what would it have cost? How does that cost compare after inflation to today? You know, my ads generally come from one of four different places. And anytime I have a new camera, that are not a new camera, but a camera review that I'm working on, I'll just hit those up and start searching for stuff. So I won't say it's easy because it's not, but doing it as long as I have, um, it, it becomes easier to, because you start to, you know, be able to rely on stuff that mm -hmm. I found previously. Well, actually, um, that sort of leads into another question from uh, the, the great ether that is our fan base. Mm -hmm. Uh, you're known for long, long form blog posts and reviews on average. How long does it take for you to write a piece or more, maybe the process from the point you get the camera in your hot little hands, you run a test, roll through it and to the point you're ready to hit upload, uh, in your content management system. Uh, it, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, the answer, uh, unsurprisingly is that it varies wildly. Mm -hmm. Um, it, a lot of it depends on how excited I am about a camera. I mean, I won't, I won't lie. Some reviews are more fun to write than others. Um, you know, you guys, you mentioned earlier how you like to go to my site for some of the more obscure ones. And so sometimes if I'm doing, a, if it's like a challenge to find something and then I do find something, I get like way more motivated. Um, before the show started, we were talking about the Minolta SRT, you know, like the 101s. And if you notice, I've never reviewed that camera before. Um, you won't find a review of the Pentax K1000 on my site. You know, I did a head-to-head -head shootout of it once before, but never a proper review. I don't have a ton of Nikon SLR reviews, even though I love Nikon SLRs. And, and the reason for that is there, there, it's not as much fun to dig into a camera that everybody already knows about. You know, uh, when people have already formed their opinions, you know, mm. it's just kind of like sometimes I'll still do it. Um, I think it was last week. Yeah, November 10th, I published a review of the Olympus Pen F, the half frame SLR. Mm -hmm. um, I got that camera back in the summer of 2018, and I actually like had planned on reviewing it back then. Mm -hmm. And I just finally got it done now because like it's, it's a great camera, um, but it just didn't click with me. Mm -hmm. I did not love the experience, and I know many people do. So it's kind of like, man, do I really want to write this review? I could either just 
throw something like, you know, generic out there covering the basics of it, how to use it and some sample images and be done. Or maybe I could be a little honest and talk about why it didn't connect with me. And, you know, and sometimes just getting that motivation to do certain reviews takes way longer than others. Um, sometimes there's a camera I love and I really am excited about a review, but maybe I'll develop the role and all the images came out bad. You know, yeah. uh, one time I had done two rolls of 127, you know, and it's hard to find 127 roll film. And um, I screwed up and poured the blicks into the developer ke developing oh, chemicals. Right. So not only did I ruin my chemicals, I ruined the rolls. So it's yeah. like to, to get two more rolls of film and then to reshoot that camera sometimes can throw me off by months. Um, oh, but again, you know, you, you guys know how, how good I am about brevity. Uh, um, I, I will say that the fastest reviews... I could say I probably about a month from start okay. to finish. Okay. Uh, but okay. there are some reviews that, that can take me years to complete. Hmm. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, I noticed how you tend to go for the slightly more obscure cameras, like like the Minolta XE7, which is another favorite of mine. Yeah. And I've you've got the Nickermat EL2 or the Nikon EL2, which is like the last of the you know last part of the, the last Nickermat line. Mm -hmm. And I got two Nickermat EL, so you know you're in good company. And, and I just published that EL2 review earlier this year, and I, I started this interview by saying that my first Nikon film SLR was the EL2. So in a way, you could kind of look at it as it took me five years to finally write a review for that camera. Even though <laughs> no, I was that the same camera? No, it's not. I've had – the original one I had was in horrible shape. Um, I, I've gotten a few over the years, and it took me a while to find one that I, I liked enough that was kind – I don't – 100% care about cosmetics. Like I'm not the kind of collector that wants mint examples of everything. I actually appreciate cameras with patina. You know, I, 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 because I love the history of cameras, sometimes finding a well-worn camera that has, you know, brassing and stuff like that. Um, I think, mean, in my opinion, adds to the appeal of it. Uh, but I do want something that at least functions properly. And uh, it took me a while to finally find one that was, that it was worth worthy of keeping and reviewing. So no, it's not the same one. Okay, that's sort of leading into the next question. What is the most baffling and impossible to figure out camera you have ever reviewed to date? In terms of using? Um, yeah, usability. Like, Well, I'll tell you, just recently I had a discussion with uh, Paul Reibel um, about the Argus V100, uh, which is a rebrand of uh, Iloka um, something. Um, and while that camera itself isn't really hard to use, it has the most bizarre sequence for getting the film compartment open. Um, so it, I, I challenged him. I said, without looking at the manual, take time how long it takes you to figure out how to open the camera. And he, he couldn't figure it out. You know, and Paul's a collector, you know, who's, who's come across hundreds of thousands of cameras and he couldn't figure out how to open it. Uh, oh, so wow. I won't even tell you because I haven't reviewed that camera yet. But anybody who has the Argus V100 and knows how to open the film compartment, you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, but in terms of just use in general, <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, once you use them, you start to kind of get used to the um, the ins and outs of them. Uh, I had a Connie Omega Rapid. That's the six by seven press camera um, that they had. And that camera's pretty easy to use once you know how to use it. But the film loading procedure process on it, you, you got to read the manual for, um, it's got this little door that acts as a, uh, like a dark slide that's mm -hmm. integrated into the camera. Mm -hmm. And the first time I shot a, two rolls of film in that camera, I had the, it shut. Um, and there's no, unless it's broken on mine, but I don't believe there's any kind of override that like prevents you from shooting the camera with the door shut. So I got no images. No, there's not. I never, I, I worked with a Kony Omega rapid for, uh, a, for a good year, but could never get it to work properly. Yeah. And it's, I love the camera. I really do. Um, and obviously once you, once you figure it out, it's no longer hard, but yeah. Um, a real famous one that people love to say is difficult is the Kodak metalist. Uh, it, it does have a pretty strange film loading procedure, especially if you want to get the exposure counter to work properly. Yeah, I have a good friend who loves his Metalist for its optics, but yeah, he says that it, it's a camera that's not for everybody. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan. I love that camera. Um, 
you know, it's, it's definitely the medalist is definitely a love it or hate it kind of camera. Some mm -hmm. people just, they hate it. Uh, but I will say though, if you hate the medalist and it's because it uses 620, then I have a few uh, words for you that I probably shouldn't say on this podcast, but uh, uh, that's, that's probably one of the, the excuses that, that I, I just don't get is that people who refuse to shoot 620 cameras because you can't get 620 when, you know, spooling 120 onto 620 spools, like literally takes 90 seconds to do. So if there's, if you don't like the Kodak Metalist, hopefully it's because some other reason other than it uses 620. Okay. Um, if you're not willing, you just pay the premium. You order you pay the premium. from FPP. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Keep the boys in New Jersey uh, going. I'll do it for you. So, okay. Um, here's another one. Okay. If I had the magic power of sending you one camera via FedEx tomorrow morning, you've always wanted to review, what would it be? There was a long time I would have said the Kodak Ektra, but I have one of those now. Um, You know, I don't know. That's a good question. Because um, the thing is, sometimes rare doesn't make it interesting. So um, if, if I could have one camera, you know, uh, to review tomorrow. I'm going to have to, you know, let me come back to that one. Let's skip. I'm going to have to hit pass. But I will, okay. answer, but I will answer it, though. So don't, okay. Don't, well, let, let, let it perk in your brain. Yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll circle, circle back. Now, one feature you do regularly on your site is Kepler's Vault. We all know who Herbert, Herbert Kepler is, but yes. you, for those who don't know, explain. So Herb Kepler um, was an editor for both modern photography and later popular photography. And he got started um, with modern, I want to say in the early to mid fifties, um, and, you know, initially, I think he just started out as just another editor, but he became, uh, he was a huge fan of Pentax. He started writing books. Uh, he just became one of those guys that was like a, 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 a camera author all-star. You know, he was up there, um, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, David Douglas Duncan as one of the, the greatest photographers of the 20th century, you know, um, and he was like that level, but for an editorial standpoint, I mean, he's a capable photographer too. You know, he developed methods for testing lenses that magazines use that allowed them to be more objective. You know, um, today in the digital age, everybody likes pixel peeping, you know, look at a lens and zoom into its pixels and see how much, you know, chromatic aberration and, you know, uh, all these weird optical anomalies that we can see on, you know, high resolution, uh, you know, LED computer monitors. But back then, you know, things were analog. They didn't really have the, the, the technology to um, come up with these elaborate testing methods. Well, Herb Kepler came up with that. You know, he actually created a book. Um, I, I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's a really generic name, like how to test lenses or something like that. That, that almost became the Bible for uh magazines even beyond pop photo and modern photo for, for testing lenses and he just he worked in the industry uh you know i never met the guy uh but the people that i've talked to that have met him say he was an incredibly kind incredibly knowledgeable um everybody you know you stopped and listened when he would when he would talk about something um and you know i think he passed away in like 2012 maybe i'm 100 sure on that but i started that series a friend of mine named Mark Bergman, um, he started scanning in old back issues of pop and modern photography. He started from the late 40s and started going up to the 60s. And once he completed all that, he's now doing the 70s and 80s. Um, and I, you know, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, like this, this information you have out here is, is fantastic. And, and it's all publicly available on Flickr. Like I don't have a uh, um, exclusive right to his, his scans, but you know, he just scans and scans and scans and he'll like, he'll, he'll, he'll put them in folders for like the month 
in year that it, that he got it from, and he'll he'll make an effort to give them like a title. But um, there at the when I first started, there wasn't really an index. Like, there was really no way to like search for anything, and I would just start jumping into these old back issues, and I started finding so many amazing articles that I thought, God, I, I I'm in, I'm enjoying reading this, and I think other people would too. So I had this idea to create these series of posts where I would use his scans but then do like my own little intro, you know, where I, I kind of summarize what's in the article, maybe for people who, who don't have the time to read the whole thing. But, um, you know, but if they do, you know, it might just be an intro to it. And I was like, all right, I want to do this. Mark said, go for it, man. I don't care. Um, but I'm like, well, what, what kind of name could I give it? Like I wanted to come up with like a cool name. And I started seeing Herb Kepler's name over and over and over again. And, and originally I thought, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to limit this to articles that either he wrote or were in the magazines he worked for. But I've, I've definitely loosened up my criteria over the years and I've included some articles from us camera. Um, there was another short lived camera magazine, I think called camera 35. So I have started to include articles that he really had nothing to do with, but they're all in the spirit of keeping those old uh, memories alive you know, and, and people will sometimes see these articles. And on occasion, I'll actually get feedback from people who remember reading an article like the first time. Like, God, I remember that article from the 60s. Like, I can't believe you found it. You know, most people, though, are like me that have never seen it before. And the, the cool thing about photography and something that I tell people of like the why do I still shoot film is that the, the, the laws and the rules and the principles of shooting photography really haven't changed a whole lot. You know, the, the Sunny 16, uh, Arthur Felix's you know, F8 and B there, uh, the rule of thirds, you know, all these so-called so rules of photography apply just as much to a 1930s Barnack Leica as they do to a, a modern digital mirrorless. So, you know, to find an old article that talks about how to get a specific shot or, or what can make your photography better or, you know, a, a story, um, about how people got started, I think, are, is endlessly fascinating and, and, and relevant. So, um, again, short answer. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's, yeah, that's but, awesome. Yeah, but Herb I mean, Kepler. That's great. Yeah, I Herb Kepler. That. He was the resource. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure there were other people who who knew who were like him, but I named that series of articles uh, in his honor. Uh, I wish I could have met the guy, uh, maybe even interviewed him. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I have. Uh, I have 81 of those that I've done. So if I, if I maintain my current pace, I'll hit my 100th Kepler's vault sometime next year. Awesome. And another question to ponder, uh, how do you manage to get a coherent interview written considering all the beer you drank? <laughs> I know we asked Some, that question too. Yeah. Someone, someone close to you asked that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what kind of beer, by the way, just for oh, giggles? Man. Okay. Uh, I, I don't drink a ton of beer. <laughs> I drink way more coffee than I do beer. Uh, but I, but I do like my, I do like my libations, uh, in terms of beer, you know, I am, here, here's an analogy that, uh, that I like to give to people when I talk about beers before I answer your question. Um, for those of you from the United States, you know, uh, what White Castle is, you know, White Castle, yeah. cheap, cheap sliders are greasy. Uh, they, yeah. they may not even have meat. So what I'll say is, you know, sometimes when I want a cheeseburger, I want a half pound Angus beef patty topped with smoked bacon, the finest cheeses, fresh lettuce and tomatoes with fancy mustard on a pretzel bun. Oh. And sometimes I want oh. my castle. Sometimes I want my castle. To me, <laughs> you, you can like one and, and like the other. So I love craft beers. I love IPAs. I love German uh, Hefeweizens. Uh, but I, I also like Budweiser. I like Molson. You know, you guys are from Canada, so uh, mm. Molson Canadian. I, I drink pretty much everything. Okay. Um, so how 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 do you how do you how do you bang out an interview if you've uh, and again whoever the person is who knows you <laughs> too well? Yeah, Paul. Us. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I do a lot of my writing in the daytime. Um, so so probably not so much at night. Otherwise, my the quality of of uh, of reviews would probably go down considerably. So I, I do, I, I, I can, I can proudly say that the overwhelming majority of stuff you might read on my website um, is, has nothing to do with me drinking beer. Cause uh, once that happens, I, um, I, I generally lose interest in typing, but coffee, well, the one coffee. thing, <laughs> the one thing that I've often found is that I get a lot of my great ideas after having a couple mm -hmm. 
Yeah, same here. And it's here. the coffee that really keeps me going yeah. with it. I'm so. drinking coffee right now, in fact. So, uh, yeah, that that's definitely the motivator there. And you're right. You know, um, uh, again, you, you talked to Steve Dowling last night, um, but we've, we've spoken about uh, what it takes to have a successful blog. And one of his tips that I think was very, very relevant is uh, – get a spreadsheet or, or a Word document or notepad or something and write down 20, 30, 40 ideas of what you want to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you come up with something, just add it to the list. And, and not all those will actually turn into articles. Some of them, you know, may not even be interesting. But, um, you know, like you said, in terms of ideas, like I will on occasion just something will pop in my head and say, hey, that's a good idea for an article. Uh, and I'll just write it down. I actually have a spreadsheet where I keep track. I have a tab for future articles. And sometimes it's something like it's it's a half finished thought that maybe I'll finish. Like a good example of that is earlier this year, I did two posts called um, 11 Unfortunately Named Cameras. Um, I had seen uh, a couple funny named cameras like the Polaroid Swinger, you know, the Canon 110ED, um, you know, the, the Argus Lady Carefree. And I'm like, man... I should probably make a list of cameras with goofy names and like it just sat as an entry in my spreadsheet for, for months until I finally was like, all right, I have enough to make a whole list. And uh, originally it was going to be 10 and I had the whole article written. I was literally just kind of saving it to post. And that's when, uh, you know, coronavirus really started to hit real bad in, in the United States in March, you know, other areas of the world too. So before I was about ready to publish that, I thought, okay, is there a camera with Corona in the name? And sure enough, there was. So it became 11, unfortunately, named cameras. Uh, but yeah, so like that's, that's kind of a way that you'll find uh, an article is just, just keep thinking. And if you get an idea, write it down. You know, if it turns into a cool article, great. If not, no big deal. It's just a line on a spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and again, another question from a studio audience. What in, in what is, in your opinion, the most reliable SLR and or rangefinder on the market, right? Well, in, out there in the market right now. And as an extra quantifier, not Leica. Not Leica. I think I saw that question. So that assumes that Leica is automatically better, which um, I'll probably lo- lo- lose some readers on that. It, it, you know, there's, there's some good cameras out there. Uh, for rangefinders... If we're just talking about reliability only, like cameras that will survive the nuclear holocaust, uh, cockroaches will be on this barren earth shooting film. Uh, I got to go with the Argus C3, um, the, the brick. You know, that camera is, it's rudimentary, but it, it, it always works. In the rare instance you find an Argus that's not working, it, you just usually need to hit it maybe a little harder, uh, maybe pour some gasoline on it, lighter fluid. And usually that'll loosen it right up. But uh, if 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 you're looking for reliable rangefinder, something that will never fail, I, I'll go with the Argus C3 over anything else because um, they almost never fail. You know, the rangefinder falls out of alignment. You physically remove the rangefinder from the camera, like you pull it out, and you can adjust it outside of the camera. And then once you have it right, you just put it back in. You know, instead of a lot of other cameras that require a partial or full disassembly. Wow. Um, in terms of what I think is, is an incredible range finder, like the actual range finder itself. I really, really like the uh, Agfa Carrot. Uh, you know, the American version was the Ansco Carol Mat. I don't know if you guys have ever played with one of those before. It's, um, mm-hmm. it was, I haven't even it was, heard of it. It was Agfa's like, answer to the Kodak Retina, you know, a German-built 35-millimeter. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a folding scissors camera instead of the Retina that has a door. So the lens pops forward um, when you open it up. But what's, what's so great about the rangefinder and that camera, if you've never used them before, is it uses a split image rangefinder like early Leicas did, except the entire viewfinder is the rangefinder. So there's only one window. The top half of the viewfinder is the left side of the rangefinder, and the bottom half of the viewfinder is the right side of the rangefinder. And for people, like I have very poor vision. And sometimes it can be difficult for me to see rangefinder patches that are dim. Um, and even on the older split image cameras, usually, you know, they're bright and easy to see, but they're very small. Whereas the, the Carat has a rangefinder that is not only big for the era, but when the entire image is lined up, then your image is in focus. But 
even better is everything in there is a glass prism and the glass prisms are cemented together. So there's, there's no beam splitter. Wow. There's no beam splitter, which um, if you don't know what a beam splitter is, it's, a, it's like a mirror that's semi-reflective, meaning that part of the light bounces off of it like a regular mirror and the other part of it goes straight through it. Uh, and that's how you get that, that second image on most rangefinders. It does not have those, um, it, it's, which makes it brighter, meaning that 100% of the light passing through the top half of the viewfinder gets to your eye, and 100% of the light passing through the bottom half of the viewfinder gets to your eye. Nothing split. Um, there's no mirrors to fall off. Sometimes you get an old rangefinder camera and the glue that originally held the mirror in, into whatever it's connected to is, is dried up and become brittle and the mirror can actually fall off inside the camera. There's no chance of horizontal, oh my phrase, uh, vertical. There's no chance of a vertical misalignment on those cameras. I do think the horizontal can, can come off a little bit. But um, it's it's an incredible design. I love the carats for for people. That's another like love it or hate it kind of camera. A lot of people just really don't care for them. Uh, the one con uh, to them though is that unfortunately a lot of them have what a lot of people call the Agfa green goo, um, which was a lubricant that they used when assembling those cameras that has not aged quite as well as the lubricants used in some other early 20th century cameras. So oftentimes, and this is probably the reason the carrots aren't as fondly um, remembered these days is because you find so many of them and the focus is either frozen or incredibly stiff. But if you do find one that's working or you're willing to clean it yourself, I love the rangefinder on that camera. I, I think it's, it's one of the best ever made. Um, every time I use one of those things, I have probably a dozen of them. I have both the Ansco and the Agfa versions. I even have one uh, that does not use regular 35 millimeter film. It uses the original Carat cassettes, uh, but they're, they're great. They're, they're awesome cameras. So if, if you want to use a rangefinder camera uh, and you're willing to be patient and find one or send one out for service, I would argue that you will not find a better or more accurate 35 millimeter rangefinder than the Carat. Um, Nice. You asked about SLRs. That's probably a harder question. We'll tell you not Mirandas. <laughs> yeah. um, they look pretty. They're very pretty. And I'm actually a huge fan of Mirandas. So don't take that as a slight to the brand. Cause I, I have this completely illogical infatuation with like my wife actually is aware of Miranda as a camera. She's like, did you get another Miranda? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, you want to talk about a bulletproof, 35 millimeter SLR. I don't know that it gets any better than the Nikon F2. Um, the mm. F is probably right up there, but on occasion you will find Fs with um, the slow speeds won't work. Um, but that's usually not a fault of the camera. It's just that those things have been used, you know, way more than so many others. So the F and the F2 are probably up there. Um, you briefly touched upon the Canon EF. Um, fun fact on that is even though it does have an electronic shutter, it actually only uses the electronics at speeds of one second and slower. Everything else is fully mechanical on that camera. Yeah. So, so even if you do find an EF with, with fried electronics, pretty much all of the most usable speeds will still be fine on that thing. And I will say this, the EF was the first Canon SLR that I really liked. You know, uh, that, that's nothing against the AE-1s. Obviously, they sold billions for a reason. Uh, but I just, I never really got those cameras. But the EF was was the first one that really drew me to it. Have um, you ever shot with the FTB? No, I have not. That's another one. It's like, it sort of flies just below the radar. But it's a, it was like Canon's version of the Knicker Mat. Yeah, <laughs> they're built the last. They're lovely. Yeah. And... Uh, Ahead, and they sorry. work well in cold weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of camp SLRs I love. You know, we talked about, um, I mentioned the Practina earlier. That's a fantastic camera, but it's hard to find them in working order nowadays. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Exactas, even though the, the ergonomics on them are just completely bizarre. You know, that could be, that might answer be another one of my answers for cameras uh, that's infuriating to use. Because um, everything on that camera is left-handed and I'm right-handed. But uh, even worse is that the body is like trapezoid shaped. So like when you're trying to grip it, your your front fingers are grabbing it by the front, but it's got this angle 
and it, it's like your fingers are constantly being like sliding off the side. That's, that's a camera that definitely needs a neck strap because you don't want to drop those. No, definitely. So, so just to wrap it up, we're going to uh, circle back to uh, what is the one dream camera you would love to review? Um, oh, man, I got to think of something. Uh, <laughs> I would like to review a, um... oh, here's one. I know, I've, I've been wanting one of these for a long time. The Pentax LX, that's one I'd like to review. Interesting uh, call. That's their pro or semi-pro camera, interchangeable viewfinders. Um, I love Pentax cameras. You know, I, I have the Pentax K, I love them. Uh, I have the SV, I love them. Uh, I even appreciate the K1000, even though it's kind of a sterile, generic, you know, camera. But I, I do really like uh, Azahi Pentax, uh, the, I mean, the Takamar lenses. Uh, but mm. yeah, I, I would like to shoot a, because I've shot a Canon F1. And it was okay. I mean, it was good. I had no complaints. It just, you know, it's like, all right. I shot a Minolta XK, which was there. It's called the X1 in some markets, XK, I think, in the United States. And again, it was okay. I didn't really care for the way that the lens coupled to the um, view, the prism. Um, but I, I've never, I've not once even held so much as a, as a Pentax LX. <laughs> so there, that, that's that's my probably unexpected. They probably would not have guessed hmm. Pentax LX. No, well, the LX was Pentax's answer to the Nikon F3. Right, yes. It came out, I think, in 81, maybe, right? Yeah. And the F3 was 80. Yeah, and they had a reasonably long production span, I think. Yeah. The Pentax nerds in the studio audience will correct me on that. But uh, Hell yeah. I've handled one. I was sorely tempted, but in the end, I just wound up getting a K2, which is a hell of a lot less expensive, yeah. slightly yeah. bigger, and, you know... It's, it's always fun when you don't know the answer to something because sometimes I, I hit these crossroads when writing a, a, a post and I'll go, all right, I don't honestly know the answer to this question. So I'll, I'll just make something up and wait for someone to correct me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or I could just keep asking. And I'll tell you, I, I will make an effort. I will ask as many people as I can think of, you know, hey, do you guys know the answer to this question? If nobody knows, then it's like, all right, I tried, you know, and I'll post it. And sure enough, most of the time someone will come along and correct me and, and, uh, and, and that's, and that's cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I am 100% willing to make changes in my posts. I've done it many, many, many times uh, about the only thing that rubs me the wrong way is when some people are, can be kind of jerks about it. You know, Alex, mm -hmm. you and I have spoken about this before. Oh yeah. Um, there are certain groups of collectors and, and certain people specifically that uh, maybe they just don't have the best um, communication skills. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe they're just a little bit too passionate, you know, and they see erroneous information as a threat. I mean, I've, I've been called um, accused of writing fiction on my site. Um, you know, somebody has said that I, you know, I just make stuff up and, and I mean, obviously I don't, no. um, but uh, you know, and that's okay. It's all right. It's that's, it comes with the territory overwhelmingly though. The film camera community is, is amazing. Uh, yeah. There's some trolls, but there's trolls in literally every interest group that exists, but, oh, but yeah. putting aside the, the, those few, um, just, just this community is great. Uh, if anybody's listening, thinking of getting into this, don't feel ashamed, you know, uh, or embarrassed, I should say, you know, I think there's plenty of people, you know, I'm always trying to help people out. Uh, and, and I tell you what, like I said before, I, I just started doing this six years ago. I was literally just a dude bored on eBay and, uh, and I've gotten to where it is. And that's, and that's, I think I've answered or talked with this with other people before too. That's why my site's called MikeEckman.com and not like a cooler sounding name you know, um, because I never intended it to be a camera site. Like I, I just did it for fun and it sort of grew on its own. And there actually was a point in time where I was considering um, renaming it, coming up with something cool, but a combination of, I just never found anything cool. And, and people started to know me as, you know, like, you know, Alex, your site is just your name. That's um, right. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just believe mm -hmm. it. There's nothing wrong with that. But that was not a conscious decision to make MikeEckman.com be about camera reviews. I mean, yeah. um, so it was just one of those things. But, you know, hey, before you guys uh, end this, if you don't mind, I have a question for you, Alex. Yeah. 
So you can be on the Mike Ekman blog or podcast, I mean. <laughs> um, so I'm a huge fan of Kodak Panatomic X, right? Yes. Um, can you name me, like, okay, so real quick, that is a film that I, I tell people I think defies aging. Like it literally, no matter how old of a role you find, you just shoot it at box speed and it'll almost always come out great. Is, Absolutely. Can, can you think of another film that kind of has that long lived, like no matter what you do to it, it's, it's just going to come out great like oh. that or... Is, is there anything I should be looking for? Um, nothing really that slow, um, but Kodak Plus X mm -hmm. um, and Veracrome Pan seem to really defy yeah. aging. I've never come across a bad role. One thing I found about V-Pan, um, or I should say all roll films, is um, versus 35 millimeter is it seems as though you have a higher chance of the film going bad when it's a roll film because of the backing paper, you know, yes. paper has a tendency of absorbing moisture. So there's an increased chance of mold or mildew growing in between the film, yep. or you'll sometimes see the dye transfer. Like I've actually developed old roll film and you could see the exposure numbers imprinted into the emulsion. You can um, find that in modern film also. Take a look at Shanghai GP3. Okay. So that's not oh. even unique to old films. Yeah, yeah. I wish I wish Kodak made uh, Veracrome Pan in 35 millimeter because I think that was a roll film only film. Yeah, it was. Correct. Yeah, but Panatomic X, I know you're a big fan. Uh, I recently sent Jim Gray a couple rolls that I had uh, bulk rolled for him and, and he couldn't believe how, like, I mean, he knew, you know, you and I have talked about it before. <laughs> but I just, I just said, dude, just shoot it. 25 centimeter 25 shoot a roll uh develop it in whatever developer you want at the normal speed you know if it's hc 110 six and a half minutes you don't need to consult any massive dev chart for it and, and that just goes so against what so many people believe about expired films but uh i just you know um you know if, if there was one film that i like if like rather than shoot the pentax lx if someone had a time machine, it can go back and get me something from the past. It would be like a lifetime supply of Kodak Panatomic X. Oh, I'd be right with you. <laughs> All right, we'll split it then. Sounds like a plan. Just don't go stepping on any butterflies. No butterflies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't don't kill Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Mike, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, it's been um, great. And uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. My name's Alex Lokes. And if you have a problem with green goo, you might want to uh, look at your own personal hygiene problems. Uh, it's Bill Smith. Just stay cool and shoot tons of film. Mike? Mike. Oh, oh Wake sorry. up, Mike. Wake up, Mike. Well, you know what? A round of coffee. All right. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you guys. You know, um, you know I, I, I like doing these things. Uh, and just chit chatting with people. To me, this is this is the best part of the hobby is just having these kind of candid conversations with people. But uh, so uh, if if anybody has any more questions for me, I'm happy to answer them, and uh, maybe I'll have a better answer than the Pentax LX. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the Pentax LX. It's a cool camera. Yeah, no, I mean it legitimately is something that I've I've tried to get, but the prices on them are.